We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Hi, this is Cheryl Broderson in studio with Jasmine Allnut. And we are so excited to bring you part two. Yes, of Lady Jane Grey. And we kind of cut off right in the middle of all of the intrigue building and, uh, you know, some of the tensions that we're building. Gosh, you guys must be used to this by now, though, right? There's always tension during Tudor England. That's right. So (laughs) So, just to wrap it up, Lady Jane Grey is just this young teenager. mm -hmm. She had abusive parents. She's been used as a pawn politically Mm -hmm. by... Just about everyone. Yes, it's so sad to try to get close to the throne. Right. Especially your parents. And yet she's this brilliant young woman Mm -hmm. who knows Hebrew and Greek, and she's been involved. Like all these things. Yes. And she's, yes, she's super educated, loves the Lord, very passionate for the things of God, for the scriptures, you know, like her cousin Edward had been, the, the, the king. But we know that Edward died, right? And so that left a vacuum. That left a void. And uh, we uh, hopefully remember as we left off, John Dudley had tried to pull some strings. He was the he was Edward's Lord Protector, helping him since Edward was such a young boy on the throne. Right. And so Dudley had kind of maneuvered things, knowing that if Edward died, even though he was a uh, as a Protestant, Mary his half-sister would take the throne as a Catholic, and that would change everything. And so Dudley, because of his own ambition, had engineered and arranged for Lady Jane Grey to enter the act of succession and become queen through the very spurious claims that she was a distant cousin. (laughs) But again, like I said, um, it was pretty clear that Mary had a stronger claim to the throne because she was actually Henry's blood daughter, right? Related daughter from his first marriage. And so... It was obvious Mary probably had the greater claim to the throne. She had more forces behind her. Even some Protestants were uncomfortable with this idea of Dudley's to try to engineer things and put Jane on the throne. And so, you know, we enter into this conflict. That's where we left off uh, between uh, Mary and the forces really behind Lady Jane. Remember, Jane is just a pawn here. She has no say in the matter. She's being thrown into all of this as a young girl and teenager. However, Jane was an outspoken Protestant, and that alone would make her a threat to Mary. And she had offended Mary on a few occasions because of her zeal and um, her desire for um, the the Protestant cause and the the word of God and really felt, and she felt sincerely that Mary was deceived and going the wrong direction. And so obviously Mary's affection for Jane had long since cooled. This had happened over a period of a few years. But again, as a Catholic, Mary also knew that ultimately Jane had to be removed in order to strengthen her position. If Jane is left around, she's going to become a rallying point for the Protestants, right? Eventually, they're going to see Jane as this heroine and and start following her. And then Mary will lose even, you know, any of the clout that she had. And so it just looked very dangerous all around. And we also have to remember, keep in mind, folks, we've talked about this repeatedly throughout the Reformation period and you know, really even back in the Middle Ages, that the idea of church and state was still um, being threshed out. And so you still have this connection with politics and church, and it was just very, very messy. Well, Henry had said he was head of the church. Exactly, as the king. And so, uh, you know, that's why there's all of this intrigue and violence. It wasn't always just a matter of faith. It was because faith and politics were so linked together. Kind of sad, but that's just how it was. Mm-hmm. So that's why Jane, even though she just was a sincere Christian, she probably would have been happy to just go live her life serving God somewhere, 
you know, incognito, not dealing with any of this. But she was linked with a op- opposition political party. And so that's why she was a threat. But you also think, too, how Catherine Parr did not want to marry Henry VIII, but said, you know what, if this is a way mm-hmm. that I can save mm-hmm. Protestants. Yeah. And I can preserve, you know. Mm-hmm. The Reformation cause. And, the Reformation yeah. cause and believers, mm-hmm. then I'll do it. And she did. And she did it for the Lord. And Lady Jane Grey had lived with Catherine Parr. Mm-hmm. And this is an influence. Oh, so, so much, yeah. Lady Jane, though reluctant, mm-hmm. you know, perhaps, you know, being this yeah. godly young woman thought, I can help the cause. Yeah, well, at least I can take carry the torch for Edward. Remember, she mm-hmm. and Edward were very close as cousins and like-minded friends. And so there was that thought, like, well, maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, But again, remember with Mary, too, she was— um, passionate uh, as a Catholic uh, in a political sense uh, for the most part. And uh, remember, too, you know, you got to I don't know. I try to look at all sides of all of this. Mary hadn't had like the greatest life either. I mean, her dad had kind of done her mom dirty, right? Had divorced Catherine of Aragon for no reason. Mary had become marginalized and pushed out, even though she was the legitimate daughter of Henry. And, you know, it was just I I think there was a lot of bitterness. There was just so Mm -hmm. much underneath with all of this that we have to keep in mind. And so she just became a very uh, politically Catholic zealot uh, for the cause here, pushing back on all of this other stuff that Henry's other children had brought into the picture. (laughs) So Jane sadly becomes a scapegoat in all of this. Uh, Again, Mary did have the stronger claim to the throne. She also had a stronger military force. And so Dudley's army and even her parents' army kind of just melted away. I mean, Mm -hmm. it didn't really ever come to anything. Well, think about all those Catholic rebels up in the north. They're so excited about this. And you've got Mm -hmm. um, quite a a, – that had been always a tension Mm -hmm. with London, the the rebel Catholics. And, you know, there's a – and then plus, too – You've got the support of France and Spain when you're going Catholic. So she's yeah. got continental she's got support, a lot too. behind her. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, yeah, again, Jane's supporters, they just didn't really have a chance in all of this. And that's why she was called the nine-day queen, because mm-hmm. just nine days after Dudley engineered all of this, that's what's so crazy. He goes to all this trouble, arranges all of this whole act of succession sneaky thing <laughs> back door. Mm-hmm. And just nine days later, boom, July 19th, 1553. It was all over. Mm-hmm. Jane and Guilford were imprisoned for treason at the Tower of London, awaiting uh, impending execution. Um, it, just as a side note, and I think I mentioned this on a previous podcast, uh, those who were arrested and kept at the Tower were usually high-ranking people or popular figures who were executed privately so they wouldn't raise too much sympathy among the masses, right? Because And that was the case with Jane. Jane could have been a lightning rod, right? Just kind of a this beacon for the Protestant cause. And so it was better to kind of keep her kind of tucked away at the tower and um, eventually executed privately. So it wouldn't, um, you know, so there wouldn't be a lot of common people watching this and, and getting caught up in the emotion and, you know, start some kind of a revolt against Mary. That was the goal here was to quietly remove her. And Jane reportedly said, and, you know, I mean, think this really was her heart. I now willingly relinquish the, crown, relinquish the crown and endeavor to solve those faults committed by others, if at least so great a fault can be solved, by a willing relinquishment and ingenuous acknowledgement of them. Again, she never wanted any of this. Now, she might have thought like, well, okay, I guess I'm a Protestant. I can carry it on the torch. But really, this was never her desire. This was always the people over her who were 
making this happen, engineering all of this. And she was making that really clear there. Hey, Mary, I willingly relinquish the throne. <laughs> and so, um, you know, that actually it makes this even more tragic and sad. Is She was trying to tell Mary, hey, no harm, no foul. And so that's what makes it even more tragic. So the problem with, that Mary probably had in all this is that there were always going to be supporters. Yes. The Protestant supporters that would always be pushing for Jane if, if she let her live. Always trying to support her. Always, I mean, think about uh, like uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, who would later vie for Elizabeth's throne. And what yeah. happened? Elizabeth didn't want to deal with Mary, Queen of Scots, but she finally had to because Mary, Queen of Scots, kept rallying yep. supporters. And Mary, you know, Mary Tudor the second, mm -hmm. so to speak, or what we call her Bloody Mary, no doubt was being influenced. Like you can't. You can't let, let Jane live. Yeah. Jane live because there will always be supporters. And as long as she lives, there will be a competition for the throne. Yeah. Like I said earlier, she's the lightning rod. Yes. You know, she's always just going to be not only that, but really, as you're saying that, I was thinking this would have made Jane look really good too. like Mary, right. you can have the throne. Right, it's like, right. wow, what an amazing girl Jane is. Right. I mean, that's going to make people even love respect her more. Now, at the same time. It's important. I think this is an interesting thing. Elizabeth is like terrified. Oh, absolutely. Because she's, watching she's all this. also a threat to the throne. Yes. And this is the thing, though. Mary cannot touch Elizabeth unless she has a child. Because if Mary does not have a child, then um, she can't deal with her sister or mm -hmm. put her away. If she has a child, Elizabeth can be. Killed. Removed, yeah, because then there will be an heir. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So Elizabeth at this point is just, she, her life is in jeopardy as well as Lady Yes. Henry. And this explains, sorry, just quickly, I had, I had um, mentioned this, I think, on the previous podcast uh, with Anne Boleyn, and I mentioned how Elizabeth ended up being a little more middle of the road. It's because of all of this intrigue she's watching. I mean, people are losing their heads on a, you know, at a moment's notice over all of these, these, uh, religious political tensions. And so she very much started to keep her own counsel. I'm not going to come out super strong either way. I don't want anyone <laughs> to get worked up. And so it just was crazy. And so uh, that's a good point to mention, too, that Elizabeth is watching all of this. So, you know, the months passed. But like Cheryl said, it became really clear, like, you can't, to marry, I, I can't let Jane stay on the, I can't let her just live because she's just going to constantly be a beacon for the Protestants to rally around. And so uh, February 12th, 1554, my sister's birthday, that's kind of sad. Oh, wow. <laughs> anyway, the morning, um, that morning, uh, Lady Jane and Guilford were sent off to be executed. So, I mean, this all just happened. It was such a whirlwind. This happened so quickly. But even that day, as Jane was getting ready to go and face, you know, her execution, she boldly stated the act against the Queen's Highness was unlawful, the consenting there and the consenting thereunto by me. But touching the procurement and desire thereof by me or on my behalf, I wash my hands thereof in innocence before God and the face of you, good Christian people, this day. In other words, she knew this was all wrong and that she had been forced into all of this and used by her in-laws, the Dudleys, right, by John Dudley and by her parents. And so that's what she was making really clear there, like, hey, I'm sorry for the role that I played in this. But honestly, this was not my doing. This was not my heart or my desire in any way. 
Now, um, before Jane died, she actually made some really remarkable and powerful confessions of her faith that were preserved. And this is another reason why Jane is considered kind of like a, almost like a, a martyr for the Protestant cause. Uh, in particular, her final public disputation, uh, which was like an interview that everybody would have with an esteemed cleric. Somebody in the church would come and, you know, try to persuade a Protestant to, uh, you know, capitulate and come back into the Catholic Church, that kind of a thing. So Queen Mary's chaplain, John Feckenham, he came and conducted this final interview or disputation with Jane, and it was such an amazing testament to her faith. Again, this was always done before an execution, and so it was something pretty normal, but Lady Jane's was just very, very remarkable, her disputation. And she boldly stated that justification comes by faith alone, that the scriptures have authority over the church, that there are only two sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism, not all of the other things that were um, part of the Catholic Church, you know, confirmation, extreme unction, all those things. And, of course, here we are again, the communion elements are symbolic and do not become the body and blood of Christ. There's that transubstantiation issue again. Uh, all of these points of contention. It's actually just, it's always been interesting to me that that is the biggest point of contention when justification by faith was kind of huge as well. <laughs> but this was a really remarkable conversation, and she articulated the biblical tenets of the Reformation really as well as any of the Reformers. You read some of what she said, and it was just right on. It was as if Martin Luther himself was there saying it. She said, I ground my faith upon God's word and not upon the church, for the faith of the church must be tried by God's word and not God's word by the church, nor my faith by the church. And so, you know, just very eloquent, very clear. And again, when it came to, it's interesting too, she was even very eloquent and made a strong argument when it came to transubstantiation. Uh, she said, God forbid that I should say that I eat the actual natural body and blood of Christ, for then either I would consume my redemption or else there would need to be two bodies or two Christs. If one body was tormented on the cross and they ate another body, then he must have had two bodies. Where was Christ when he said, take, eat, this is my body? Was he not at the table when he said these words? He was at that time alive. What did he take but bread? And what did he break but bread? I mean, so she's making just these logical arguments to try to explain to, to Feckenham. And you've got to remember, Jane's passion, and you see this in her writings and her words, was for people's individual souls to be saved and changed. And she was really giving it her all, not just to make some great statement like, look how intelligent and what a great, you know, Reformation figure I am. She was concerned about Feckenham's soul. <laughs> she was worried about him. Now, in the end, Feckenham actually was thankfully, a very kind and gracious man. He actually really liked and respected Jane. And uh, he gave up and basically just said he was sorry for her um, because he, he just couldn't, you know, he had nothing to argue against what she had presented to him. Uh, and it's interesting because he was about 20 years older than Jane. So he's in his, you know, mid-late 30s. But he couldn't hold a candle to her understanding of the actual scriptures. And I think he realized that. So he kind of just backed out of the whole conversation. And then again, like I said, Jane concluded their, their discussion by expressing her earnest desire that he receive the Holy Spirit and have his eyes open to the truth. Because she could tell he was a good man, a kind man. She even thanked him later. Um, she saw that there was hope for him to really come to know Jesus in a personal relationship. And so that's really what her desire was for him. Kind of interesting. And yet, like I said, so it was a very um, gracious conversation, but it was very clear that Jane just was convinced, uh, had strong conviction, and also, again, that she she knew the word and um, 
could present it very clearly. So Paul Zoll says that Jane's uh, grace under pressure indicates how deep her faith was. Quote, how touching it is also that she was grateful to Feckenham, that she thanked him for his kindness at the end, that she begged him to change his mind about the gospel for his soul's sake. I, I, and again, like I said, that's just amazing. Here Jane is facing certain death and execution herself, and yet she's worried about this man's soul. Quote, Jane's authority to speak as she does in a public academic debate at the age of 16, the day or two before her certain execution, has got to be one of the most wonderful moments in the history of early modern England. But I would agree with that. It was just really a, a beautiful testament. And, and these things, these disputations that they would have, they were always recorded and then kind of circulated. So a lot of people could read Jane's words and hear her heart and even see her arguments, you know, on behalf of uh, the authority of Scripture and um, justification by faith, all of these things. So Jane also had a, a little bit of time before she died to write a couple letters. She wrote one to her father, one to her tutor who had returned to Catholicism, again, trying to convince him to uh, come to the faith. And then she wrote this powerful letter to her 14-year-old sister on the back page of her Greek New Testament, her sister Catherine, and had it sent to her. And she said, I have sent you, my dear sister Catherine, a book, which although it be not outwardly trimmed with gold or the curious embroidery of the artfulest needles, yet inwardly it is more worth than all the precious minds which the vast world can boast of. It is the book, my only best and best beloved sister of the law of the Lord. It is the testament and last will which he bequeathed unto us wretched sinners, which shall lead you to the path of eternal joy. And if you with a good mind to read it and with an earnest desire to follow it, no doubt it shall bring you to an immortal and everlasting life. It will teach you to live and learn you to die. It shall win you more and endow you with greater felicity than you should have gained possession of our woeful father's lands. If you apply diligently this book, seeking to direct your life according to the rule of the same, you shall be an inheritor of such riches as neither the covetous shall withdraw from you, neither the thief shall steal, neither yet the moths corrupt. Now as touching my death, rejoice as I do, my dearest sister, that I shall be delivered of this corruption and put on incorruption. For I am assured that I shall, for losing of a mortal life, win one that is immortal, joyful, and everlasting. The which I pray God grant you in his most blessed hour and send you his all-saving grace to love in his fear and to die in the true Christian faith, from which in God's name I exhort you that you never swerve, neither through hope of life nor fear of death. For if you'll deny his truth to give length to a weary and corrupt breath, God himself will deny you. But if you cleave to him, he will stretch forth your days to an uncircumscribed comfort and to his own glory. Farewell once again, my beloved sister, and put only your trust in God who only must help you. Amen. Your loving sister, Jane Dudley. So I actually remember reading this letter to someone and they started crying because it was just like just so a precious. powerful testament yeah. there in her final moments. It's interesting, though, that she signed it Jane Dudley because during those nine days, she was mm. she signed letters Jane the Queen. And that was part of the incriminating evidence right. against her. So now she's saying, I'm just Jane Dudley. I'm just Jane Dudley. <laughs> I love it. Which is you know, just speaks again to that humility and that zeal for the Lord. And wanting to you just know, step down. And yeah. also when you know you're going to certain death, you know, just her priorities. Yes. You know, looking this is at her what's priority. important to her to see people saved. Yeah, you exactly. Know? That's awesome. I'm glad you brought that out. So mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I just want to read uh, from Allison where she wrote a book on the children of Henry VIII and just the way she kind of captured the eyewitness accounts of mm -hmm. Jane's execution, because it was really just a tragic moment and very poignant. She wrung her hands, then went on, I pray you all to bear me witness that I die a true Christian woman. And now, good people, while I'm alive, 
I pray you assist me with your prayers. Turning to Feckenham, she asked, and again, again, remember, she had thanked him and they had a very, just a very warm um, interaction. It was really sweet. And it's something that he went with her to the scaffold. Yes, he that did. That he would accompany her. That, I, mean, I don't know if everybody did him. that. Yeah, yeah. It was pretty cool. Yes, he was a neat guy. Mm-hmm. Turning to Feckenham, she asked, shall I say this psalm? He was too choked with emotion to answer immediately. Mm-hmm. But at length, he said, yay. And she knelt and recited in English the 19 verses of the 51st Psalm, the miserere mei deus, in a most devout manner. Then she rose and kissed Feckenham goodbye, saying, God, I beseech him abundantly reward you for your kindness towards me, although I must needs say it is more unwelcome to me than my instant death is terrible. For a moment, they held hands in silence. Jane gave her gloves and handkerchief to Mrs. Tilney, her prayer book to the lieutenant before untying her gown. The executioner offered to help her, but she desired him to let her alone. In silence, she untied the scarf around her neck and took from Mrs. Ellen a fair handkerchief with which to blindfold herself. Then the hangman kneeled down and asked her forgiveness, which she gave most willingly. At this point, the executioner asked Jane to stand on the straw in the center of the scaffold, moving aside so he could, she could see the block, which had been hidden by his bulk. I pray you dispatch me quickly, she said and knelt, then said apprehensively, will you take it off before I lay me down? No, madam, was the reply. Jane tied the blindfold and felt for the block. It was not there. What shall I do? She cried in mounting panic. Where is it? No one moved as she groped blindly in the air. Then an unidentified bystander guided her hands to it. She laid her head down and arched her body to receive the blow. Lord, into thy hands I commit my spirit, she said clearly. And then she was beheaded. So Yeah, well, the axe just... fell in one clean stroke, Ugh. which is a mercy. An answer to prayer. I mean, it really honestly. Is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because sometimes that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Wasn't well, it Anne Boleyn that yes. it didn't happen with? Yes. Oh, gosh. Ugh. So, you know, not surprisingly, Jane still was a martyr for the Protestant cause. And historically, this has been a huge blemish on Queen Mary's reign. Uh, one of the reasons she is known as Bloody Mary, you know, because of things like this that were just right. you so know, hard to justify, really, other than the political expediency. But there were those who were pushing to have Jane executed by um, burning at the stake. Mm. And so actually, this, so this was, was a mercy. This was considered a mercy and more dignified way mm-hmm. uh, to have somebody who was of the aristocracy. And remember, mm-hmm. Anne Askew was actually of the gentry. And yet, they burned her at yeah, the stake. Yeah, that's state. true. She was not, yeah, quali- considered qualified. Wow. Uh, there's actually um, a really remarkable painting of her by Paul Delaroche in the National Gallery in London that kind of captures the scene where Jane is like trying to find the the block. I mean, people were, you know, it, it said that the account talks about how people were just crying. I mean, it was just such a horrible <laughs> and tragic scene you at know, her death. And it's interesting because up to this point, Mary had been a very— um, considered the people's choice, mm. that the majority of the people wanted thought that Jane's claim was illegitimate right. and Mary's was absolutely legitimate. And so there was, you know, just those people that thought, you know, I want this because it's right, not mm-hmm. necessarily because it's expedient, but because it's right. And at this point, this is when her popularity began to ebb. Mm, not surprising. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this would be, this was very Difficult, I think, for people to reconcile. Even look, the executioner asked forgiveness. Yes. Sorry, Jane, that I have and to do this. I mean, John Feckleman, <laughs> who was yes, Mary's, was, you know, Mary's chaplain. Chaplain. Yes, he had a really hard time mm-hmm. with this. I think this be- created a lot of um, just um, moral uh, moral angst within a lot of people. Mm-hmm. This whole situation. So, a couple f- encouraging footnotes to all of this. Jane had really exhorted Guilford. He wasn't as strong of a character as her. 
But um, she really exhorted him to stand strong in his faith. And he actually died without recanting, thanks to her mm-hmm. encouragement. Mm. And uh, her dad and a lot of the others here, of course, Dudley, they were all rounded up eventually and executed for treason after Jane and Guilford. But when her dad was executed 11 days later on the same spot at the tower, uh, he actually took a bold stand as a Protestant and made, you know, just this really remarkable final speech. Um, And so this is where his character really, like I said, he Mm -hmm. had started to, I feel like I I wish there was more on his journey, his life, Mm -hmm. and how he seemed to turn, I think, towards the end and realize, what have I done? You know, it's interesting, too, though, because his his wife was tied to the throne. And she was the one yes, who— Yes, she was the tyrant here. Exactly. Yes. She never—we never read of her having any kind of remorse mm. in all of yes. this. Yes, But he did. And so he wasn't perfect, but he really was not as unprincipled and evil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think Jane's life is just a powerful picture of the Apostle Paul's exhortation in 1 Timothy 4.12. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word and conduct, in love and spirit, in faith and in purity. Mm-hmm. So I just, yeah— Quite a testimony. Now, we're going to totally change gears here for our last few minutes. I wanted to highlight another woman that has been sent in by our listeners. Like we've told you, we have been taking all of these things in and we want to showcase them. And so just for a few minutes here, I want to share a little bit about a missionary named Phyllis Sorter. And her story was sent in by one of our listeners, Ginger Kaufman, who wrote a blog post about her as well. And this is actually kind of a fun story for me to share on a couple levels. Um, First of all, some of you may recall, a while back, we had our friend Chris Rep on the podcast. And Chris had served as a missionary with the Fulani people in Nigeria. And it turns out that Phyllis Sorter is also serving among the Fulani. So that's pretty cool. And so I don't know. We should probably ask Chris if she knows Phyllis. Maybe they Mm -hmm. do. Um, And then there's another fun connection for me personally, because apparently there's a documentary that um, was made at the end of last year on Phyllis's life and ministry. And when I was looking at the link, I noticed the sponsoring church was Sage Hills Church in Wenatchee, Washington. And I'm from Wenatchee, Washington. People probably don't know that, but that's where I grew up. And I grew up uh, going to the Wenatchee Free Methodist Church, you know, through my teenage years. And I think that's actually connected with Sage Hills Church because they're both Free Methodists. So it's this total weird connection. So thanks for that, Ginger. You probably had no idea (laughs) that there was any kind of connection, but there it is. So here's what Ginger wrote about. Uh, Phyllis grew up as a missionary kid in Mozambique, and in 2005, God called her to serve as a missionary herself to Nigeria. And she began to notice uh, early on in her ministry there that there was a group of uh, beautiful women and children who came to the river near her home uh, to wash their clothes. And one day she asked a man who they were, And he said, oh, those are the Fulani people. Don't bother with them. They're just these nomadic cattle herders. They move around and take farmland, you know, for cattle pasture. And so he blew them off. But from the time she was young, Phyllis had really struggled with uh, the injustice of just discrimination against different tribes and and against the African people in general. So when that man spoke derogatorily about the Fulani, it actually stirred in her heart a desire to go against that attitude and get to know them. So she starts befriending the Fulani. And as Ginger puts it, from chiefs to children, Phyllis reached out in love to the people. And eventually a prominent chief asked her, of the Fulani, asked her if she would educate his children. And of course she agreed, but she made it clear to him. And we've seen this with some of our other missionaries, as we've talked about. She said, you know, I'm going to include Bible classes and I'm going to have Christian teachers. Are you okay with that? And so the Fulani uh, were traditionally Muslim, and yet the chief agreed. And so that was the start of this awesome work of God among the Fulani called Schools for Africa. To date, they have eight primary schools, over a 1,000 children, uh, Muslim and Christian, attending together. 
again, but they're all learning, you know, about the Bible and stuff. It's pretty cool. Not only that, but the Nigerian government has partnered with Schools for Africa to provide, quote, space for holistic land and livestock management with rotational grazing on reserves. And so there's some, they've actually established three land reserves for the Fulani and, and helped them manage their land and their cattle herds better so that they can actually start settling in villages and not force, be forced constantly to travel around in search of pasture land. Uh, most importantly, of course, the Lord has used Phyllis to bring many Fulani to Christ. She's extended uh, love and care for them both practically and spiritually. And as Ginger puts it, she really is a champion for the Fulani. Now, I, I do want to mention briefly her ministry was fruitful, but not without, uh, has been fruitful, but not without opposition because in February of 2015, Phyllis was kidnapped by a tribal enemy who did not want the schools to succeed. And so he held her at ransom for 12 days and she was sure she was going to die. But, uh, you know, she said that the Lord was just such a present help during that time, and prayers were going up for Phyllis around the world. The Nigerian believers were gathering together and praying, and eventually she was released miraculously. After that time, she went back to Seattle, which I think is her home base, I'm presuming, uh, to recover from the trauma. And understandably, though, she had this oppressive sense of fear that she really had to work through. But um, Ginger said, while there, the Lord lifted what felt like a big boulder from off of her chest and the weight of fear. And so the Lord freed her from that fear miraculously. And within four months, she was back in Nigeria with this sense of God's peace. It's amazing. And the fact that she would come back really endeared her to the people that much more as you can imagine. So the Lord used even that horrendous traumatic experience for good and for his glory in and through Phyllis. And so she's carrying on and serving with them to this day. And so for anybody who's interested, there are a few links if you want to get to know more about her ministry and even about the kidnapping, because I'm giving you like a very brief overview, but the video, it's called uh, Kidnapped Redemption, um, based on a book she wrote by the same name. That's, I think it's on streaming services or going to be uh, pretty soon here in the next couple of months, and it'll be on DVD available. But uh, there's also the uh, Phyllis Sorter Schools for Africa.org. And if you just type in, honestly, if you just type in on Google search, Phyllis Sorter Schools for Africa, S-O-R-T-O-R you can find it. So, uh, you know, I watched the preview and it was pretty fascinating, the preview to the movie. So cool stuff. Check it out. Phyllis Sorter and her remarkable story. And that's just scratching the surface clearly. So. So thank you it. again for joining us on this edition of Women Worth Knowing. We're glad we're getting your stories in. Mm -hmm. And who knows, Phyllis Sorter might be on a podcast at some point. Yeah, I know, right? That's a pretty intriguing yes, one. We might need we'd to. We'd love to. We'd love to <laughs> have her. her story firsthand. Yes. So thanks for joining us for the tutor and for Phyllis. Yes. <laughs> God bless you. Bye. Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnut. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnutt.